If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Good morning, afternoon, evening, whenever it is you're listening to this. I'm Ken Levine. This is episode number 11. Thanks so much for being here. Today, I am going to talk about my longtime partnership with David Isaacs, how we met, how we broke in, the whole legend. That and much more right here on Hollywood and Levine. David Isaacs and I have been writing together since 1973. So if you do the math, that's 111 years. Well, people always want to know how we met, how we started, that sort of thing. So I figured, well, today, that's what I'm going to talk about. We actually did meet in 1973, and we both met in an Army Reserve unit. Way back in 1969, when the Vietnam War was raging, there was what was known as the draft. And the draft meant, depending upon your birthday, you would be either drafted or, you know, you were in that middle area where you might be drafted, depending upon whether they needed extra people or maybe not, or you were safe. So uh, if you were like number one through like 120, there was a good chance that you were going to get drafted. If you were like 120 to 240, Eh, you were in that gray area, and then anything after 240, you were pretty safe. Well, I was number four. Number four. Meanwhile, my partner David was much luckier. He was number seven. So this was now 1969, and at the time I was going to UCLA, and I still had my student deferment, but I was nervous that they could pull that, something could happen, whatever. At some point, I knew I was going to get drafted. So I decided to get into an armed forces radio reserve unit. And back then, I think it's the same way now, but I'm not totally certain. But back then, if you signed up for the reserves, you were in for six years. You had to go through basic training, regular army basic training. You had to go through regular advanced training. All of that took about six months. You would have to go to 16 hours a week worth of meetings, which could either be like four hours every week or a full weekend, depending upon the unit and how they decided to parse it out. And you had to go to summer camp for two weeks every summer. You were called up and you had to go on to an active army base. And, this is the big and, you were also on call that you could be called up to active duty at any time. 
And back in the Korean War, they called up the reserves. And recently in Afghanistan and Iraq, they called up the reserves. So you always had this guillotine kind of hanging over your head. Still, I managed to get into an Armed Forces Radio Reserve Unit. At the time, I was an intern at radio station KMPC in Los Angeles, and one of the disc jockeys there, Roger Carroll, also recorded a lot of programs for Armed Forces Radio, and he had some connections, and they were able to get me in. And my feeling is, if we were called up, then it was going to be Good Morning Vietnam. I thought, man, the world is really in bad shape if they have to call up disc jockeys. So anyway, so I sign up for this in 1970, go through basic training, go through advanced training, etc., etc., and I graduate from UCLA in 1972, and then I become a top 40 disc jockey, and I'm bouncing around the country, getting fired every three months. And I had to go to Army summer camp in 1973. At the time, I was a disc jockey at KMEN San Bernardino doing the all-night shift. And while on my Army summer duty at Fort Carson, Colorado, I uh, I met a, a new recruit to the unit, and he was a guy who was reading the biography of playwright George S. Kaufman. Now, first of all, to see anybody in an Army uniform reading a book is kind of unusual, but George S. Kaufman was one of my idols. He, along with his partner, Moss Hart, uh, wrote some great Broadway comedies, You Can't Take It With You, Man Who Came to Dinner, Once in a Lifetime. Uh, Moss Hart wrote a book called Act One back in the early 60s that I read. And boy, the whole idea of being a playwright in New York just sounded so exotic and enticing to me. So Kaufman and Hart were idols of mine. And I had read that book and I had never met anybody else who was even interested in reading a book about a 1920s, 30s, 40s playwright. So David and I started talking, and uh, it turns out that he was originally from Miami, and he moved out to California, and his roommate happened to be somebody who was in this unit, the Fighting Triple Deuce, the 222nd, and um, so got David into the unit, even though he had no real broadcasting um, experience, but when has that meant anything to the Army? So we were talking, and he had a job at the time working for ABC in their film department. Back in those days, it's hard to believe when now everything is so instantaneous around the world, but back in those days, they would show a program in prime time in the United States, in the contiguous 48 states, like, say, Tuesday night at 10. And in Hawaii, they would show that episode a week later. And there was a department where you would have to make a tape copy of the program and then ship it to Hawaii. So the primetime schedule that we had here in the U.S., was a week ahead of the primetime schedule they had in Hawaii. So, yeah, the Christmas shows were on after uh, January 1st, that sort of thing. 
this is a department that, needless to say, has long since uh, been abandoned. But uh, that's what David was doing at the time. And I, like I said, was working in San Bernardino. So we both got to talking and we both kind of had this desire to be comedy writers. Now, I had no experience whatsoever in the field. Uh, Neither did David. I think he said he took one writing class at the University of Miami and got like a C minus in it. So he was the professor. But um, it's something that I wanted to do, but had no idea how to begin Uh, It was really a golden time in television situation comedy. You had great shows like the Mary Tyler Moore Show, the Bob Newhart Show, All in the Family, MASH, Maud, Rhoda, The Odd Couple, on and on. It was a golden period for TV comedy. It was also a pretty golden period for movie comedy because you had Mel Brooks, doing Blazing Saddles back then. Woody Allen had done Take the Money and Run, Bananas. Uh, so he was flying high. And so there was an awful lot of comedy. It was really an inspiring time to get into the industry. Well, we shook hands. We said, yes, yeah, someday it would be fun to write something together. And summer camp was over, and I went back to San Bernardino and promptly got fired. So with nowhere to live and no job, I moved back to Los Angeles and moved back in with my parents who had a condominium in Marina del Rey, and I would spend my days sending out audition tapes to various radio stations. And of course, back then, when you didn't have cell phones and there weren't even voicemail answering machines. So what you would do is send out these tapes and then just sit home and wait for the phone to ring all day. That was depressing and demoralizing because, in my case, the phone never rang. Month after month went by. Well, I decided to do something about it, and I picked up the phone and I called David. And I said, hey, remember me from uh, Army Summer Camp? You want to try writing a script? And he said, okay, let's talk about it. So we met a couple of nights later at the Hamburger Hamlet on Sunset Boulevard at Doheny, a restaurant that survived up until about two years ago. Uh, There's no shrine for us or anything there. There's now a different nightclub. But uh, that's where we met, and we decided to try writing together. Now, when I went to UCLA, I was a psychology major, and I thought about taking some writing classes, but we had somebody, I was very involved in the campus radio station, KLA, and we had one of the disc jockeys there whose heart was set on becoming a sitcom writer, and he took a class, and he wrote a spec episode of something like That Girl, I think, and got an A-plus in it. And I read the script, and and I thought, God, this is a piece of shit. If this is what they're teaching, I want nothing to do with it. So I never took a writing class at UCLA. Now, of course, the irony is I teach comedy writing at UCLA, but back then uh, I steered clear of it. And like I said, David had one course. Uh, We thought, well, let's start by writing a pilot. What do we write about? Well, 
we're both like 23 years old and with very limited life experience. And pretty much the only thing we really knew was college. So we had an idea of writing a pilot about two guys who were roommates in a dorm in college. Okay, great. I had never seen a script. I had no idea what a script looked like. So what I did is I drove down to Hollywood and there is a bookstore, I think it's called Bennett's, Bennett's or Collector's Bookstore, one of the two. But, and of course this was Hollywood, you walk in and you know how there are remainder tables with uh, out-of-print books that they sell for a couple of bucks? Well, here in Hollywood, there was a table with TV scripts. So I went and bought an odd couple TV script and a couple of Mary Tyler Moore shows and went home and studied them. I had no idea what a script even looked like. Like, oh, wow, interior, Madison, apartment, day. Hmm, that's how they do it. So we now had the format. And we would get together every weekend and write this spec script. Of course, David had this full-time job uh, at ABC schlepping film cans, and I had a full-time job staring at a phone that never rang. But on the weekends, we would get together at David's apartment in the Valley on Arch Drive. And to get us psyched up, what we would do, Woody Allen had a two-disc set uh, album of his stand-up routine, and we would listen to one side of one of the albums uh, before we started writing, just to kind of get us all psyched up. By the way, if you have never heard Woody Allen's stand-up album, treat yourself. It's really, really funny, and maybe at some point here on this podcast, um, I'll play you a segment or two. So we would do that, and then we sat down to write. And David had a binder and would write the script in longhand. And the way we figured out uh, the way we would work is that David would write the script in longhand and David didn't really know how to type. I knew how to type. So I would then type up the final version of the script. So we're writing and writing and having a good time doing this. No outline, no nothing. Again, we, we had no clue what the hell it was that we were doing. Um, I remember at one point we were writing and uh, I turned to David and I said, what page do you think we're on? And he kind of thumbed through the binder and said, well, we're probably on page uh, 35, 36, something like that. And I'm, you know, thumbing through the odd couple script. And I said, well, they start wrapping it up here pretty quick. So we took 10 minutes, came up with an ending that probably would have cost $100 million in 1973 money. We had like the whole school's computer system blowing up, a crowd scene of thousands of people. Uh, We wrote this in about 10 minutes and finished with the end and closed the binder. That was it. We were writers. We went out to El Torito and had a couple of margaritas to celebrate the fact that we were writers. Typed it up. And at the time, David happened to be dating a girl whose mother was an agent. But she wasn't with any of the big agencies. She was like one of those private agents. And I don't even know if there are too many of them anymore. But, you know, basically, no one knew who the hell she was. But she was our agent. And 
believe it or not, she was unable to sell this pilot. And I met a, a guy who was a writer at one time on The Odd Couple named Frank Buxton. And uh, I gave Frank a copy of our pilot, and he read it, and he said, well, there's some funny jokes in here, but this is totally undisciplined. Uh, There's no way you're going to sell this thing. And he said, you're going about it all wrong. And I said, okay, how do you go about it all right? And he said, you have to write spec scripts from existing shows. Now, that was back then. Now, it's completely the opposite. Now, they don't want spec scripts from existing shows. Now, they want original material. Now, they want pilots. They don't want that pilot that we wrote, but still, now they want pilots. So, we said, okay. And the show that we both really responded to was the Mary Tyler Moore show. And he also said, you have to have an outline, So we figured, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we watch the Mary Tyler Moore show and tape every episode? And by tape, I meant hold a little microphone up to the speaker and tape it on cassette. And then go back and break down the episode and write an outline based on what we saw. Well, Fortunately, neither one of us had much of a social life. He probably broke up with the girl by then. I don't know. But we were available every Saturday night at 9 o'clock, which was when the Mary Tyler Moore show was on CBS back then. And week after week, we would watch the show. We would tape the show. We would then come up with an outline on the show. And once we had about seven, eight outlines, we started comparing them. We started looking for patterns and we kind of figured out just how they told those stories. Again, now uh, you can just binge watch an entire season, uh, an entire series if you want. But back then we had to watch when it was on the air week after week after week. So, We then came up with an idea for what we felt was a a good Mary Tyler Moore Show episode, and we wrote that. And I sent that script to Frank Buxton, and he said, you know, you guys are very funny, but there's a lot of story problems here. And he gave us some notes, and we went back and wrote a second draft. We gave it to our agent because our agent said that she knew David Lloyd who was one of the writers of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. In fact, it was David Lloyd who wrote the famous Chuckles Bites the Dust episode. So we figured, great, we'll get it to David Lloyd. So she sends off the script to David Lloyd, and a week goes by, we don't hear anything. Two weeks go by, three weeks, a month, we don't hear anything. So when we're calling the agent saying, uh, Polly, what's going on? Uh, we haven't heard back. You know, as if you're going to send a script to the Mary Tyler Moore Show and uh, their top priority before anything else was to read a spec script from an agent who no one ever heard of. So the agent, again, she claimed that she knew David Lloyd, that she was a friend of David Lloyd's. So she fired off another copy of the script along with an angry letter saying that he was shirking his responsibilities as the story editor. Okay, that was great. Well, 
A week later, she did hear from David Lloyd. And how is this for the first line in a rejection letter? How dare you? That's how he started the letter. And the first two paragraphs were ripping her. And then finally he got around to, oh, and the script is an amateurish piece of shit. So that was it. We were rejected by the Mary Tyler Moore Show. But, you know, we really enjoyed writing together. We really enjoyed the experience. So we decided we were going to give it two full years. We were just going to continue to write script after script. And hopefully somebody somewhere in a two-year period would recognize that we had a little talent and we could break through. I decided to quit radio at that point, and I came back to Los Angeles and got a job with the KISS Broadcasting Workshop, which is one of those diploma mills, but this one was centered on broadcasting, so you would pay $1,500 and I would teach you how to read the weather. Um, I made very little money doing this, but I wanted a 9-to-5 job something that I didn't have to take home with me at night so that David and I could get together two, three times a week and work at night on our scripts and also work on the weekend. So we wrote an episode of Rhoda, and we had that submitted to Rhoda, and Charlotte Brown uh, rejected the script. And then... Uh, she left her. There was another executive producer, Lorenzo Music, came aboard. So we resubmitted the script to him, and he rejected it. So uh, we were rejected twice by <laughs> the same show. But uh, undaunted, we continued. And what really helped us at that point, we decided maybe we should take a writing class. So what we did is there was not only the UCLA Extension Program at night, there was also something called the UCLA Experimental Program. I don't really know the difference because I don't think you got credit for extension classes either. But there was an experimental class in comedy writing taught by a guy who claimed that he wrote on Barney Miller, although his name does not appear anywhere on Barney Miller. But um, we were in his class, and what he would do is he would read spec scripts out loud and then break them down and talk about them. And so he had a Mary Tyler Moore Show night because we had a spec Mary Tyler Moore Show, and two of the other writers also had spec MTMs. So he read all three, and clearly ours received the best reaction, and it kind of at least gave us enough encouragement to feel that maybe, just maybe, we could pull this off. So that kept us going, and we continued to write our spec scripts. And when I return, I will talk about our big break, which happened thanks to a golf game. It was June 1975. I got a call from my mother, who played golf quite a bit, was actually a very good golfer, and she said, uh, there was somebody who joined our foursome today at Braemar named Gordon Mitchell, 
who said that he was the story editor for this new show that had just come on CBS called The Jeffersons. And my mom, being a good Jewish mom, said, oh, my son is a comedy writer and you really should read his material. And I'm sure he was thinking, oh, God, what did I get myself in for? But he was very nice. And he said, have him contact me. So I did. I called him and he said, do you have a script? And I said, yes, we do. He said, okay, send over the script. If I like the script, then I'll bring you guys in and have you pitch stories. And if we like one of the stories and the producers like one of the stories, then we'll buy it and we'll give you a freelance assignment. So we turned in our Mary Tyler Moore show. And lo and behold, about a week later, we got a letter from the Jeffersons and Gordon Mitchell saying, I really liked your script. Give me a call. Let's arrange a time for you guys to come in and pitch stories. Wow. So I called him immediately and he gave us the ground rules. And the ground rules were that you could come in with three ideas only because a lot of freelance writers were coming in. I mean, it was really a a derby of freelance writers. So we could come in with three stories and basically just thumbnails, just like what you would see in TV Guide. So we came up with three stories and we went down and met with them and we pitched our three stories and they liked one of the three. So they said, okay, we'll uh, run it upstairs to the producers and if the producers like it, then we'll go forward. Great. He called back a couple of days later. No, the producers didn't like it. Shit. But he said, we liked your ideas, so come up with three more ideas. So we did. We came up with three more ideas, and we went back in, and we pitched them. And just like before, he responded to one of the three, sent it upstairs, but this time the producers sparked to it, and... Uh, I got a call. It was really interesting uh, at the time, too, because I was doing weekend radio on B100 in San Diego at the time. I would fly down back in the days when you could just hop on a plane for like $25 and fly to San Diego like nothing. You know, there's no TSA. You, You just, you know, you show up at 8.50 and take a 8.55 flight, and at 9.20, you're in San Diego, done. Um, Oh, those were the days. So I was on the air, and uh, my roommate got a call that Saturday afternoon from Gordon Mitchell saying, good news, the producers liked your idea, we're going to give you guys an assignment, give me a call to set up a time to come in for a story conference. So my friend called me, at the station. And it's like uh, 3.30 in the afternoon. And he said, uh, Gordon Mitchell, Gordon Mitchell from the Jefferson's call. Call him back, call him back. So I put on a record. I put on, you know, some long, you know, El Paso or Hey Jude something. I don't know. I put on some seven minute record. Uh, Quickly call up Gordon Mitchell. And he goes, yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Uh, We're going to do your uh, story Uh, We're going to give you a script assignment. Uh, Can you come in Tuesday? Yeah, yeah, we can. Uh, Congratulations. And so I got off the phone, and then I had to go on the radio like 
10 seconds later, and I just opened the mic and I said something like, B100 FM, where I just sold a Jefferson's. It's three o'clock, but who cares? It's radio. Um, And so David and I went in and worked out our story with Gordon and his partner, Lloyd Turner. And again, we were complete novices. Uh, We worked out the story and he said, um, okay, when can you get us the outline? Ooh, we have to turn in outlines to these people? So I didn't know how to answer because I was afraid if I said, uh, yeah, we could do it in three days, that they might go, three days? It takes a month to do an outline. Are you guys nuts? Or if I said, yeah, it should be a, a week, week and a half, that he could go, week and a half? You should be able to do this thing in three hours. So we we looked at a copy of their outline, and we went, oh, God, four days, uh, uh, maybe five. Uh, they said, fine, take a week, no problem. So we do the outline. We follow their format. We come back in, and they said, okay, uh, we like the outline. We have this change. We want to move this around, that sort of thing. They said, now we're going to send you off to uh, write the script. They said, now, we do a lot of rewriting. Is that okay? And we were like, yeah, that's fine. He said, really, if Neil Simon had written a first draft of the Jeffersons, we would do a lot of rewriting. We didn't care. We just wanted that assignment. If you get an assignment, you break in. You can join the Writers Guild. You can get a legitimate agent. We just wanted that assignment. Uh, We said, no, we're, we're good. We're good. Now, the Jeffersons, like I mentioned, had just come on. It was a mid-season show, and so the first 13 episodes had aired, and this was the beginning of their first full season. But we figured, boy, we're in good shape, because now it's like the beginning of July, and this was episode 7 or 8, so we figure, well, they're probably going to film it around November. So we have plenty of time, because it used to take us a lot of time to write scripts back then. So they said, okay, well, this was a Friday. They said, uh, we need the script in two weeks. So if you can uh, bring it in like two weeks from Monday, that would be great. Now, normally two weeks, eh, still, it was a bit of a stretch for us, but we could do it in two weeks, except for one problem. Army summer camp. Those were the two weeks when we were deployed to go into the active service. Now, the Army is not like jury duty. You know, you can't just write in and say, you know what, this is kind of inconvenient for me right now. Uh, mind if I just push this back until October or December? No, no. You had to go when they told you. So we got on the bus the next day and went up to Fort Ord in Monterey, California. And for the next two weeks, we rode at night in the barracks. And it's not ideal writing conditions. You know, if you've seen movies like uh, Full Metal Jacket, when there's the basic training scene, 
and uh, there's the barracks where there are 40 bunk beds all lined up in two rows. Well, that's what this was. And at night, all of the other guys in the unit are playing Jimi Hendrix records, and they're playing cards, and they're smoking dope, and they're chatting and doing whatever else. And we're sitting on a bunk going, Wheezy, come over here. We're writing the script in uh, the binder, and we we finished the script in about a week and a half, but now comes the issue of how do you get it typed? Um, what are you going to do? Uh, we didn't want to type it on some old clunky army typewriter. We wanted it to look really good. We wanted it to be on like an IBM Selectric typewriter. Uh, so I called around to friends of mine in San Francisco, and my former program director who lived up there had an IBM Selectric, and we had to beg the company commander to give us a day off so that we could go and type the script. We then rented a car. We drove up to San Francisco. We typed the script. We made a couple of copies. We went back to the Army and we turned in the car, and it was a a long, very expensive day, but we had the script. So we come back from summer camp, and it is now that Monday morning, and I call up Gordon Mitchell and say, oh, yeah, we, we got the script, yeah, um, no problem. And he said, great, we really need it. When can we have the script? And I said, well, let's see, it's around 9 o'clock now. Um, the Writers Guild opens at 10, so we have to go and register the script because uh, we knew anytime you wrote a script to protect yourself, uh, you would register it with the Writers Guild. You had to go down there and put it in an envelope and pay them $20 or whatever, and you were protected. So I said, well, they open at 10, and uh, you know we're going to make a copy for them. And, blah, blah, blah. and Gordon says, schmuck. What are you talking about? You don't have to go to the Writers Guild. You, you don't have to register the script. You're protecting the script from me. I bought it. Oh, okay. Well, uh, we can be there then in a half an hour. He's like, there you go. Yeah. So we turn in our script, and uh, they were very happy. At least they said they were very happy. And we got the rewrite, and I think there's like one line of our original script left. But we went to the filming, and the way they used to do, actually it was a taping, we went to the taping um, at CBS Television City in Hollywood. And what they would do is tape two shows, a five o'clock show, which was more of a dress rehearsal, but you had a, a live audience. Then they would make whatever changes they felt they needed, and then at eight o'clock, there would be a second show. And they would tape both of the shows and uh, intercut based on performances between one and the other. So we go to the 5 o'clock show, and the um, showrunner named Bernie West also did the warm-up. And Bernie was uh, an elderly gentleman uh, and had a hearing aid. And so when people asked him questions, he kind of had to strain to hear the answers. But he was introducing people who were part of the production. 
Uh, he would introduce uh, the director and the camera guy and the script supervisor and the guy schlepping the cable and the food service guy. He was, he was basically introducing everybody but us. And we figured, well, gee, it was probably just an oversight, but, you know, whatever. You know, we still have the 8 o'clock show. And we had numerous guests coming for the 8 o'clock show because as far as we knew, this might be the only time that we ever have a television show produced. So we had our friends and family. We had lots of people who were there. And we're sitting in the front row. And again, uh, Bernie West goes into his warm-up and he is uh, introducing the gaffers and the best boys and and everybody. There's the makeup uh, girl, Marge. Let's hear it for Marge. Everybody but the writers. And finally, one of the uh, people from our party raised their hand and said, excuse me, um, who wrote tonight's episode? And he kind of hems and haws. He's like hedging on it. And I'm sitting, like I said, in the front row, and my date was, I kind of describe her as a more, uh, as a more attractive Carlo Tortelli. Very pretty Italian girl from New York. But she was kind of a pistol. And so picture the scene. Somebody says, excuse me, who wrote tonight's episode? Bernie goes, uh, uh, and then my date from the front row yelling as loud as she can because she knew that he had a hearing aid. She yells at, hey, they're sitting right here, fucker. Well, that was it for us and the Jeffersons. We never did another episode of the Jeffersons. We never did another episode of any Norman Lear show. Uh, but, um, yeah, yeah, everybody in the audience heard that. Uh, the next year, yeah, our agent tried to get us in, not a chance. Uh, but the show aired, and we were able to get a legitimate agent as a result of that and worked on some other shows like Joe and Sons, things that you've never heard of. We did some stories for Barney Miller. That's a, another story for the podcast is dealing with Danny Arnold and Barney Miller. And our agent um, went to a different agency that represented Gene Reynolds, who was one of the showrunners of MASH. And he was looking for new young writers, and they gave him our draft of the Jeffersons, not the one that aired, but our draft. And based on that, he brought us in and eventually hired us on MASH. And once we wrote our first MASH, we were pretty much off to the races. So that's the long version of how David Isaacs and I met and how our careers got started. Back with more right after this. Everybody who breaks into Hollywood has a story, and it's kind of like snowflakes because no two stories 
are alike. That was ours. Thanks very much for listening to it. Okay, you've heard me enough for the week. I'm going to get out of here. Hopefully, uh, you'll come back next week, and maybe you might even subscribe and give this podcast a five-star review. I certainly would appreciate it. My thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, also to John Wolford and Howard Hoffman, and especially to you for listening. I will see you next time. Bye-bye. Hollywood and love.